what happens when I don't feel like I've got a lot to give? Uh, you know, generosity is great when you feel like you can spare some change, but uh, sometimes my tank feels pretty empty, you know? Uh, like I'm running on fumes. And uh, I don't know what I can commit to. I don't know how much service I can muster up within myself. And it's not always like that, but it does come and it goes. And what do you do? How do you have a life worth giving when you're not sure what you have to give? And I was encouraged to see that this is actually the first subject that is addressed in the earliest book of the New Testament which is the verses that we have in our handout from the book of James. James was actually the leader of the earliest church in Jerusalem. He was the half-brother of our Messiah Jesus. And so when he writes, it says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Twelve tribes, meaning, of course, the twelve tribes of Israel. And uh, so in a sense, this is so early in the New Testament history that he's writing to the first Jews for Jesus, those first followers. And it was before actually there were non-Jews following him. That's how early it is. You can go back into the book of Acts to discover the historical background to this group of people who were going through some troubles, some trials which is the first subject that James is going to address. In Acts chapter 8, we see the historical context of this very book of James. Uh, it opens up with public enemy number one, who was Saul of Tarsus, later to become the apostle Paul. But at this point, Paul was Saul, and he was participating in the first murder of a follower of Jesus, the first martyr who was a guy by the name of Stephen. He lost his life, and it says in Acts 8, verse 1, Now Saul was consenting to his death. That's Stephen's death. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which is at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then in verse 4, Therefore... Those who were scattered went everywhere, griping and complaining and saying, man, isn't this a terrible thing that has happened to us? You'll notice that in your Bibles. It's the reverse standard version. <laughs> no, but you see, these were people who were going through a difficult time. Back in James, these are people who were learning the second law of spiritual thermodynamics. The greater the heat, the greater the expansion. God was using this persecution to expand the church, but it didn't feel very good for those early believers. And so that's why James, in his very first subject, addresses this problem. He talks about testing, about passing the test. And he talks about, first of all, the importance of understanding the purpose of testing. And that is to bring about our growth, our maturity. He says, verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith 
produces patience. Now, he's talking about various trials, and so it is applying to us. He's not just talking about people who were persecuted, like we just read about, but whatever trial it may be, whatever your struggle today, none of us may be being kicked out of our homes because of persecution for our faith, but we have our own challenges. Uh, you may be going through a, a strained relationship, a broken relationship. You may be struggling at work, physical problems, whatever the challenge is, whatever is making you feel like you're on empty, that's the trial, that's the various trial. And notice that he says, count it all joy. Now that has to be some kind of a strange reaction to problems. What do you mean, count it all joy? Well, it's not a strange reaction. In fact, it's a supernatural reaction. It's not available to people who don't have the resources of God. And oftentimes, when we're in the midst of the trial, that's exactly what we think. This is, this is strange. You know, I'm the only one who's going through this thing. Nobody else has felt what I'm feeling right now. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, he, he comments on this. He says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing were happening to you. This is not strange. This is something that connects us to people around us. Our trials, our difficulties, other people have them. And we enter in and we connect with one another. We connect with humanity as we go through this. And notice that he's, he says back in James, when you fall into various testings, not if you fall into various testings. This is not a, uh, an, an elective in God's curriculum. This is a required course. And you say, well, that's fine, David, but I'm not having any problems right now. Well, be patient. They're on their way. <laughs> Remember what Job said. He said, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. And Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. You will. And that was said by the same person who said, if I go away, I will also come again. And we believe that. You will have tribulation. Paul, in Philippians 1.29 said, it is given unto you not only to believe on his name, but also to suffer for his sake. Now, I have countless times thanked God for the gift of belief that he's given to me, but rarely do I thank him for the gift of suffering. But you see, that verse tells us they're sourced in the same hand. And the purpose of all of this is to bring us into the reality of what God is trying to do in our lives. The purpose is to produce growth, to produce maturity. The testing is what it's all about. And so James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Verse 3, knowing, and I take it to mean you will never be able to count it all joy. You'll never be able to have this reaction to your situation unless you know this fact that the testing of your faith produces patience 
or endurance. That's the purpose. That's what it's all about. God is trying to grow this reality, this fruit of the Spirit, patience in your life. Now, have you ever prayed, Lord, make me like Jesus. Make me more like your son. You know, and then he goes to work. And we say, Lord, what's happening? And he says, nothing, I'm just answering your prayer. You have to be careful when you pray like that. Remember Hebrews 5 verse 8 tells us that Jesus learned obedience as a son through the things that he suffered. And so that is part of God's plan for us. That's part of life. That's part of what produces a generosity of spirit. That's part of what makes a life worth giving. That's part of how we learn to serve and to commit in the midst of that difficulty. See, God isn't just interested in the impartation of faith. He's interested in the development of our faith. He hasn't just given us a fire insurance policy to save us from some future judgment. He wants to make us like his son, and he knows how to do it. And there's a warning here. Verse 4, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, is there anyone who doesn't want an adequate supply of patience? Is there anyone who has that? No, you see, we all want the product but we don't want the process. And James is telling us here, you can't get that product unless you're willing to go through the process. And he uses two words here that are best understood in the context of fruit bearing. Those words, perfect and complete. Now we, we know that we're not perfect and we're pretty sure that we're not complete, but in this context, James is using those words about the fruit of the spirit and fruit in our lives. Now, perfect really means having all of its component parts. For example, if you've got a peach that's hanging on a branch, it looks perfect. It's got that rosy look to it, the fuzz on the outside, it's got the meat, it's got the pit, the leaves are coming off of the branch. It's, it has all of its component parts. But you don't want to eat it, not yet, because you have to wait for it to ripen. You have to wait for it to become complete, you see, where it just hangs on that branch and grows soft and juicy and sweet, so you just like to reach up your hand and pluck it off and sink your teeth into it. And you see, that's, that's the process that God is working in our lives so that we are perfect and complete. God is making that to happen. Vance Havner said, you know, the problem with a lot of followers of Jesus is they're like porcupines. They have a lot of fine points, but you can't get next to them. <laughs> and God wants to work his work in us so that we can be like his son. But we need his help. We need his provision in order to have this happen. And that's what James goes on to talk about in verses five through eight. 
provision in testing. If any of you lacks wisdom, and I take that to mean wisdom to know how to deal with the circumstances that are coming at you, there is provision. Not your wisdom, not my wisdom, but God's wisdom. In my work, one of my main job descriptions is problem solver. I don't plan it that way, it just works out. I go to work, I sit down, and the phone rings, and it's a problem. You know what I mean? You don't anticipate it, but you're solving problems. And my inclination is, when the problem comes, I grab hold of it with both hands and start to shake and work it out based upon my own experience, my gut instinct, and whatever else there is to help me out. And that's probably a, your response too. When we have problems, the first thing we try to do is solve them, but James says that's not the way to go. The first thing you do when you face the challenge is you need God's provision. You need to ask, let him ask of God who gives liberally to all and without reproach. We need to ask first, not last, which is my inclination. I was thinking about this and I remembered one of my favorite stories from C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia, the book called The Magician's Nephew. Uh, and in this particular part of the story, there are two children, Polly and Diggory, who are going on a trip that Aslan, the Christ figure, has sent them on. And they're going on the back of a flying, talking horse named Fledge. And they're going around this beautiful new Narnia. It's kind of like Google Earth for Narnia, you know? And they're focusing in, and this is what Lewis says. The valley in which they had come down was in the heart of the mountains. Snowy heights, one of them looking rose red in the reflection of the sunset, towered above them. I'm hungry, said Diggory. Well, tuck in, said Fledge, taking a big mouthful of grass. Then he raised his head, still chewing, and with bits of grass sticking out of each side of his mouth like whiskers, said, Come on, you two, don't be shy, there's plenty for all. But we can't eat grass, said Diggory. Hmm, said Fledge, speaking with his mouthful. I don't know what to tell you then. Very good grass. Polly and Diggory stared at one another in dismay. Well, I do think someone might have arranged for our meals, said Diggory. Well, I'm sure Aslan would have if you'd asked him, said Fledge. Wouldn't he know without being asked, said Polly. I've no doubt he would, said the horse, but I've sort of an idea he likes to be asked. I have to think about that. <laughs> Resources available upon request. He gives to all liberally and without reproach. In other words, he's not going to say, what, you, Brickner, you're here again? You were just here five minutes ago. Gabriel, go get the club. <laughs> God's not like that. He wants to give, but he wants to be asked. And we need to have both the humility and the grace to ask for his wisdom because we don't possess it in and of ourselves. God is good. He wants to give. But, another warning, verses 6 through 8. But, let him ask in faith with no doubting. I like the King James. It says, nothing wavering because of what follows. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea 
driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What is this warning saying? It's saying you better make up your mind when you're coming to God for his resources, that his resources are what you need. David, it's not your wisdom that you want. It's God's, right? Okay. Now here's the deal. It's the, the, the seventh game of the World Series. And the score is tied two to two. And it's the bottom of the ninth. And there are two outs. And there's a man on third base. Are you with me? The pitcher, three balls, two strikes on the batter, is winding up to give what will be the definitive pitch of the ball game. And he throws, and to everyone's surprise in the stadium, the batter lays a bunt down the third baseline. And the runner on third base is charging toward home plate. The third baseman scoops up the ball and throws it to the catcher who tags the runner sliding underneath. And every eye in the stadium is on the man in the black suit behind plate. And we watch him as he takes off his mask and begins to scratch his head. And he says, you know, at first I thought he was out, but now the more I think about it, he may be safe. Kill the ump would be more than a slogan. <laughs> They'd be organizing a lynching party to drag that guy out of there, you know. And what James is saying here is, when you come to God, you better make up your mind that he's got it all together. That he knows. He knows what's best for us. He wants what's best for me. And he's going to do what's best for me. When I know that, when I believe that, when I stretch myself out on that kind of a God, then I'll receive the wisdom, I'll understand and align myself with the purpose for all of the trials, no matter what they are, that I happen to be facing. There is a sovereign God who's working in our lives and we also need his perspective on this issue. We need to understand that there's a lot going on that we might not be able to get. You know, we want to know all the answers right now. Why is this happening? Why? We won't always know. And so perspective helps us to realize that there are other people who are going through similar problems. This connects us with people, and it puts us in a place where God can make our lives worth giving, where God can give us a generosity of spirit no matter what. And so James talks about this perspective that allows us to have acceptance of what's going on in our lives. He says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. In other words, he's reaching back into this early church experience and he's pulling out two examples of people who are going through similar problems. The poor man and the rich man. Both of them having the challenge of this persecution. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. 
For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. What we realize here is, and what helps us to gain perspective, is that, that we're living in the tension between the character of Christ and the crown of life. And that's where all of this stuff is happening. And so James says, look, there's two examples I want you to think about. Here's the poor man. And he's crying out to God, I've got nothing. What do I have? Does God really love me? Look at my life. And then right next to him is the rich man who thinks he's the only one who's got problems. Look at me. I've lost everything. And James says, you guys need some perspective here. You're both wrong. To the poor man who says, I have nothing, James says, you're wrong. You're indescribably rich through Jesus, who loves you and is leading you through this to a better place. And to the rich man who says, Lord, I've lost everything, James says, you're wrong, you've lost nothing. You've lost nothing of real value because when it comes to the test, it helps us finally with this perspective to distinguish between that which is permanent and that which is perishable. And we've got to come to the time in our lives when we get tired of playing with the perishable and we start looking towards the imperishable. The character of Christ, imperishable. The crown of life, imperishable. And we're in between, working our way through, learning to distinguish in the midst of the suffering that God has a better way. There's not a person here today that hasn't in the past, isn't now, or won't in the future experience testing and trial. And in the midst of that, we may say, I've got nothing to give. I can't have a generosity of spirit. I, have, don't, I don't have the I'm on fumes. I don't have a life worth giving. And James tells us here, yes, you do. You're rich, you're rich in Jesus. And when you understand that there's a purpose that God has for you in the midst of all this, we, all of us, we can stretch ourselves out in God and know that either way, whether the sun is shining or the clouds are covering our horizon, God is working to produce in us that wonderful fruit that will last forever. In a moment, the band is going to come. We'll have our time of giving. I asked them to, uh, to sing this song in your handout either way, which is primarily about a relationship that's going through difficulties, but it's more than that. It's about this plan that God has for us. Regardless of the clouds, or the sunshine, 
we know that there's a plan, and because of that, we can stay either way. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes we feel like we're the only ones facing the challenge of our life, and we thank you that in those times you actually connect us back to yourself and to others around us in a deep way. And that because of that, because of that greater reality, we can have all of this goodness produced in us that makes for a life worth giving, that makes for generosity of spirit, that makes for service and commitment that really counts. Lord, help us to embrace that deeper reality. Help us to believe and trust that either way, you're going to be with us. You're going to provide for us. In Jesus' name, amen.